Welcome to Of Dust and Divinity, a place where we ask big questions of small things as we gather around the table with makers, thinkers, and doers. So grab your favorite drink, pull up a chair, and join us. Hey, Chris. Hey, Kevin. Oh, man. I just had an amazing conversation with Alessandra Harris. Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited about it. Yeah. Okay, she's an author. She lives in the Bay Area with her husband and kids. And she describes herself as a progressive black Catholic, which is just an amazing category to live in in the world right now. And she Mm. brings it in this conversation. Um, So many good things. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Well, right there, progressive black Catholic. I, I cannot wait to hear more about that as we're going through the episode. Uh, there's, there's some things, you know, listening through to it. Uh, first of all, I got to give you props as an interviewer, my friend. You are, you are, you are really great when it comes to that checks in the mail, by the way. But, uh, there are so many good things in this episode from just her starting, just telling the journey to becoming an author and mm-hmm. what's all involved. It was fascinating. Yeah. So um, she is an author. Right. Yeah. And and she's actually published two novels, and she's in contract with her third novel. Oh my gosh! It's amazing. You know, it's it's phenomenal to be published once. Here she is. She's into her third novel. So her first novel is called Blaming the Wind. It came out mm-hmm. in 2016. Her second novel is called Everything She Lost, and it came out in 2018. Um, and so she hasn't quite landed, and you'll hear it in the episode. She hasn't quite landed on the title for her third novel yet, but she's in. Con- That's amazing. To be yeah. a, a recurringly published author, that's incredible. She's so talented. Yeah, so good. And and really, honestly, the the width and the depth of this conversation is is really something else. And and from everything from being an author to, you know, talking about incarceration right now in America and the incarceration rates and 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 there's several great points that that you brought up. You know, especially with your own lived experience and comparing and contrasting that with with her commentary on that it's so good but i but i did take umbrage with one thing that you said (laughs) at one point you called yourself a a middle-aged man and (laughs) sir if you are middle-aged at this point then i am ancient so i don't think you can call yourself a middle-aged man just yet so do you 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 don't have that much runway on me chris come on now (laughs) you're calling yourself middle-aged i'm old I've got the haircut for the middle-aged man. You, good sir, are still in the thick prime of your 20s with that haircut. <laughs> well, I'll take that. I'll take that. But it just it, it made me laugh out loud when you said that. I'm, I I got to I got to bust him for that. So uh no, but uh so so many good things here and 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 talking about, you know, the marginalized mm-hmm. marginalized sections of society and, mm-hmm. and really that discussion that, you know, for for folks that believe in Jesus or not or whatever perception that you have of Jesus that He's not the blonde-haired, blue-eyed guy that uh, is so often portrayed, but but uh, she points out Jesus was a marginalized person, mm-hmm. um, and uh, so so much good stuff. So can't wait to to hear the the interview here. Yeah, and you know we we were laughing just a few seconds ago, but most of this conversation was, man, we we were swimming in some deep waters, and you know I so respect Alessandra because she is so measured and deliberate and clear. Yeah. And she speaks truth. I mean, everything she says is so worth paying attention to because you'll she'll say something, and I found myself being like, "Oh my gosh, that's the gold nugget nugget of the episode." Yeah. And then yeah. three minutes later, she says the next thing, and I'm like, "Oh my gosh, that's the gold!" And it just kept going the whole <laughs> way through. It was amazing. 
She is so well spoken. So we, we we are in for a treat for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. So um, one thing I do want to reach because she doesn't talk too much about her novels in the episode, but I just I got to drop this because I was doing some research um, on her leading up to it, and you know, there's tons of praise for her novels just kind of all over the internet, and I just want to read one that kind of grabbed me from it. And so this is what uh, online reviewer said um, from the get go. This will hold you hostage and resolutely refuse to let go. The character development is sensational and the detail on each and every page will steal your breath away. So that was a review of the 2018 novel, Everything She Lost. And man, if that doesn't sell a book, I don't know what will because I'm hooked just from hearing that. Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. Um, and so if you guys want to learn more about Alessandra, you can find her online at www.alessandraharris.net. That's A-L-E-S-S-A-N-D-R-A-H-A-R-R-I-S.net. AlessandraHarris.net. And she's also on Twitter and Instagram at AlessandraH17. And she is absolutely worth the follow. I follow her both on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm just continuing to learn from her um, even since, you know, as we've been getting to know each other. So definitely follow her beyond this podcast. Um, and I just really hope you enjoy this conversation. It's going to be great. Yeah. With all that said, let's jump right in. Well, Alessandra, welcome to the podcast. I am absolutely thrilled about the conversation we're about to have. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm also really excited about it. Yeah. Okay. So you are an author. You describe yourself as a black Catholic. So there's just so much content that I'm excited to get into with you. And let's just start kind of at the beginning and basic. So how did you get into writing? So I actually got into writing back in 2007 um, for people who are, well, African-American people who are in the Bay Area, they might be familiar with a magazine called City Flight. It was kind of like the local regional African-American magazine that had like all kinds of news about what was going on in the black community. And um, it first was in print and then it went to completely online. So I worked as a contributing writer for um, City Flight for I think it was about a year um, actually, no, it was a little bit longer than a year um, for about three years. And that just kind of got my feet wet with writing, um, working with an editor, working with the team. And it wasn't until about um, 2012 that I really started writing fiction. And um, I just felt like there was stories that I wanted to tell that couldn't necessarily be told through nonfiction through essays, um, just kind of mm -hmm. delve deeper into like humanity and to, you know, um, stories that touch people in a different way than nonfiction can. So I signed my um, contract for my first book in 2015. And that was published in 2016, Blaming the Wind. And then my next book was published in 2018, Everything She Lost. And my third book is under contract right now. Wow. Okay. So you covered a lot of ground right there and I want to unpack it a little bit more. And so I'm going to just press <laughs> rewind all the way back to the beginning. Were you the kind of kid who would wake up in the morning and you're just like, I am going to be a writer. Did you live in a house that encouraged that? How did that, how did you go from 
kind of the, the prototypical parental urge to kind of do something useful with your life to deciding that like, actually that something useful is writing that I can do. How I think did you that's make a that really connection? good point because my grandfather was actually a poet and a writer. He taught African literature. Mm. Um, he was wow. um, the longest tenured at University of Pittsburgh. Um, and he's originally from South Africa. Mm. But um, when I was writing, I had his books that he had written. And I was really close to him as an Very adult. Cool. And um, I think the fact that I knew someone who was published made it feel like that's a possibility because as anyone who's told you about trying to get a novel published or any type of book published, it's actually a really hard process and it can feel really discouraging and you get a lot of rejection and there's a lot of times when you want to give up. I mean, at least that was my experience. So I think just knowing in my mind that I could be published made me keep persevering. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and in fact, that was the next thing I was going to ask you to unpack because you mentioned that you started writing nonfiction around 2012 and then you jumped right ahead to your first novel being published in 2015. That's a lot of time in there. And, And yeah, like you said, everything I've heard is that is just brutal to kind of actually get yourself in contract um, you know, I, I described, I have heard it described in so many different ways. So I just love to hear you kind of describe what that process was like again. I, and I love that perspective that you had that anchor point in the future that said, this is possible. This is part, I can see my mm-hmm. reflection in this reality, but that doesn't necessarily make the path easier to walk. It just makes it knowable. So what was that like for you? How did you overcome some of those more discouraging obstacles that came up? Well, I think also when I was writing um, nonfiction in 2007, it was completely different than fiction. So Mm -hmm. when I started becoming serious about wanting to write a novel, I took a bunch of online courses about writing. And then I transitioned to, um, at our local community center, a writing critique group. Um, Mm. Actually, the very first class I took was an intro to writing fiction. And then from there, there was different writing uh, critique groups. Sorry about that. So there was a lot of learning. It's not like I just woke up and said, I want to write a novel. There was like a lot that went into that on my end to understand how to write a novel and Mm. to really work on the craft. Um, So when I when my book was finally ready in 2014, I started querying agents because um, as a lot of people know, if you want to go with like a big five publisher, or I think it's going to be big four now. um, That's right. Yeah. So if you want to go with one of those publishers, you need to get an agent. So I literally queried all the agents that represented women's fiction. And Mm. I got a no from all of them. Oh, no. Okay. Yeah. So I actually had shelved. That's what they call it when you kind of say, okay, I'm going to put this aside. Mm. I had shelved my novel. And I, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month where okay. people from all over the world try to write a novel in 30 days. Oh, wow. You know, actually, that might have been the way that I first heard of you. Oh, okay. Some Instagram post about it, maybe like in 2018 or 2019. Would that have been a thing? Well, I so I in I think it was 2014, 
that it was November and I said, okay, you know what? I'm going to put that aside and I'm going to try to do NaNoWriMo because I had mm. friends who were, who had been done, had done it before. Yeah. So I actually wrote and, and when they say write a novel, it's like, reach a goal of 50,000 words. Okay. But a real, uh, like usually a published novel is between like 80 to 120,000 words. But for the purposes of NaNoWriMo, it's 50,000 words. Yeah. So I actually did that. And that ended up becoming my second book. But, oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. But I, I had this blog post called How Taco Bell Got Me a Book Deal. Hmm. And what ended up happening was in 2015, I had gone to Taco Bell and got a Taco Bell sauce packet. And it said, why not? And the title of Blaming the Wind while I was querying it was why not. But it was hmm. K-N-O-T, kind okay. of like referring to marriage. Yeah. So I said, you know what? I really put a lot of time and effort into that book and I really love the characters and I think I'm going to try one more time to see if I can get it published. Mm -hmm. So instead of going for more agents, because I had kind of exhausted that, I submitted to three different small publishers. I had mm -hmm. done my research and um, saw some small publishers that I thought looked like legit and like I wanted to work with them. And then from that, I ended up getting... Um, a publishing offer from Reddit Publishing, which is the publisher that I I went with. Well, and and you know I'm so I'm definitely not a writer. <laughs> well, actually, let me be more clear. I like to think that I could be a writer, but when I look at real writers, I'm like, holy smokes! I'm just like, I don't have the skill for it. But I I, I love hearing kind of that process because I'm an Enneagram Type Three which typically means that I love being the best at whatever I try. And if I can't be the best on the first try, I just give up on it. Mm -hmm. And so I've heard people talk about the writing process. Recently, I was watching a YouTube video about it. And this guy described it as his FBR process, fast, bad, and wrong, which obviously <laughs> R isn't wrong. And that's yeah. kind of the, one of the points to it. But he would just write it and knowing that he was doing it wrong, but just mm -hmm. to get it out. And then there's also other interviews I've heard with authors who say, no, I write one version and that's what I turn in. That's just what it is. And I'm like, that's mind blowing. But I have a tension with both because I understand the necessity of kind of like do it wrong the first time. But then I feel that internal tension of like, but it has to be perfect because right? that's like my personality. So how do you personally navigate some of those tensions? So especially if you go with a publisher or if you go with an agent, you're going to have to do a lot of editing and revision. So you're like with both of my novels, I turn them into my publisher. And even with my second one, my publisher wanted some revisions before it got to the editor. Hmm. So and I'm like, um, even though Reddit at Publishing is a small press, they are really known for how well edited the books are and just kind of like the the um, quality of the books because mm. they really put a lot of time and effort into them. So with our publishing company, it can take from about six weeks to even six months hmm. to work with an editor. Wow. So, yeah. So, I mean, for me, um, it's kind of part of the process where it's like, I know that this isn't the best it can be. And I'm so grateful that I've had a great editor who really helps me get it to the place where it is like as good as it's going to get. Hmm. Okay. Ha have there ever been a moment or a story where like there's one scene you particularly love or there's one character who you're just like head over heels with 
And then your editor comes along and asks for changes that like cut to the heart of what you love about those things. Um, I don't think that that's happened in particular. Yeah. I think that, um, I'm lucky that the editor that I've worked with, we have a really similar vision Mm. for the characters and for the book. But I mean, I have heard of people walking away from publishing contracts or Mm. leaving an agent because they just couldn't see eye to eye. Okay. Okay. So then they they chose their creative freedom over kind of the the option of being published. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. That's a hard tension. Oh, yeah. Because if you walk away from that, are you going to get another try somewhere else? Who knows? There's no promise of that. Yeah. And I mean, I've seen it both ways where people have gone on to get an even bigger like book deal or, you know, Mm. but I think some, there's definitely that chance if you walk away, you might not get the opportunity again. One of the reasons I was most excited to have this conversation with you is really because of your third novel, which from the little bit you've told me it has to do with incarceration and faith and some other things. So can you, as much as you want to or able to, or your publisher will let you, can you kind of frame out your third novel for us? And then, and cause I, what I would love to get into is this intersection between what it means to live a life of faith in a reality of mass incarceration and how that has birthed this novel for you. Sure. So my third novel is tentatively titled last place scene. And um, for some people who are looking at the novel, it's about a couple who, um, well, there's a 10-year-old girl who goes missing. She's kidnapped. Mm. And then there's a young couple that gets drawn into this kidnapping. And mm. like you mentioned, the husband has recently come home from being in prison. And him and his wife are trying to kind of pull their lives back together mm. after his time away. And they have a, um, a toddler I think um, who's not even two years old yet. Um, So it's like they're trying to parent and they're trying to have a marriage and they're trying to pay the bills and all of the challenges they face. And then the husband becomes a suspect in the kidnapping of a 10 year old girl. Mm. So um, with my novels, I like to talk about um, serious issues, but I don't like it to be like a lecture or Mm. that that's the main part of the story. So like I just said, there's, it's kind of a thriller and there's this mystery component too. Um, It's like a turn page turner, but I really like to explore and it's told from both the wife and the husband's point of view. So it kind of, so it's exploring like, what is life like for someone who is trying to re-enter society after being in prison. Mm. And um, I don't want to give away too much of it, but it also looks at things like how does your family history, how does how you were grown up, the family that you were born into affect um, situations that can lead you to being incarcerated? Yeah, man, that's so important to think about. So was there a, when, when was that moment for you when you kind of woke up and you're like, I need to write about incarceration and reintegration into society. Was that like a conscious moment or was that, has that just always been simmering for a long time? How did that come to be? I don't think it was really a conscious moment where I thought about that. Um, I think that 
when you when you're talking with African Americans, I think most of us know someone who has either been in prison or is in prison. It's just mm. one of those things in life where uh, mass incarceration affects the African American community mm. much more than it does, um, let's say, the white community. Yeah. Um. So it it was just something where I felt like I wanted to explore the issue more. Um, and also, so in 2016, um, I had a job for um, a nonprofit called A Better Way. Okay. And one of the, um, where I worked, there was also people I worked with who were formerly incarcerated, who mm -hmm. now worked as like parent support and parent advocates for other people who also were incarcerated and trying yeah. to like reunite reunite with their families hmm. um so when i wrote this i ended up talking with um someone who i had uh worked with who had been incarcerated for a while and hmm. he was incarcerated at san quentin and oh, wow. i just kind of wanted to get really that human perspective mm. on what life was like behind bars and the type of obstacles that he faced when he came home. Mm. And so um, it was really helpful for me because I've never been incarcerated, mm. but to just talk to someone and because there's so many stereotypes yeah. about people who've been incarcerated. Mm -hmm. And I've noticed even with my social media, when I talk about like racism, I'll get like uh, usually a really like encouraging and overwhelming response. People who are like, yeah, like, you know, racism is bad and talking about anti-racism. But when you talk about mass incarceration or when you talk about helping people who were formerly incarcerated, you get a lot of silence hmm. and there's a lot of discomfort. Hmm. And I think that you know, that's one thing we're going to talk about more. But I felt like if I was writing in a way that humanizes people yeah. who have been in prison before, right. that I think that that will give people kind of a different context. Yeah, that's so that is so important because I mean, because it's it's almost tragic that you have to say it that way, because of course, they're human, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's tragic in its own way that they need humanizing. Mm -hmm. Um, but also it's so I'm good that you're doing it. Um, because yeah, that's, it's interesting. My, so obviously I'm a, I'm a middle-aged white male. And so if you were to draw a map of intersectionality, I kind of stack up at the intersection of all of privilege. And it's something I talk a lot about in season one, but you know, I'm the son of a landowner. I'm white. I'm male. I'm college educated. I'm cisgendered straight. I'm come from a Judeo-Christian background. I mean, you could just take every single layer and, you know, I'm, I'm, I sit on the, the tip of Everest of, of white privilege. And so my own journey into seeing my whiteness and being able to have non-defensive conversations about racism, um, have been going on for a number of years, starting in college, really through InterVarsity, which I'm thankful for and has been continuing but a big trigger for me was actually this conversation about mass incarceration. Um, that was kind of what pushed me over the edge from like, okay, this is just a social conversation that some people want to have to like, you know, the conversation about how white people have created systems of imbalance and preference is like a true evil. And, and to me, my eyes were first open through realizing 
the disparity of who's incarcerated and what for. And oh my goodness. Um, and then in 2016, you know, reading um, Brian Stevenson's um, Just Mercy and other, and just like, oh man. So this is like, for me, I, it, and it's, and it is interesting because I also resonate with what you're saying that, you know, now I meet weekly with a group of other white people and we're doing, we're trying to do some internal work on anti-racism. And there have been a few times like, well, I'll just give one example. It was last summer during the California wildfires. And we had the conversation about like the, or the question was asked, how are we currently benefiting from systemic racism? And there was some silence and I said, well, guys, right now, we are literally benefiting from systemic racism because there are inmates who are getting paid a dollar a day, slave wages, mm-hmm. to go put out fires to protect our property. I mean, that we, are, we have literally recreated a slaveholder system mm-hmm. wherein human bodies are subjugated to torment to protect white people's land. Mm-hmm. And... So, so this is where I'm sitting with mass incarceration. Um, but I'm also sitting at the kind of not only apex of privilege, but also that distance of whiteness where, like you said, I'm farther from incarceration. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I just want to unpack that a little bit more with you and, and kind of some things that you've been thinking about it and, and other, I'll just actually, I'll just be quiet and, and leave it open like that and see where you go with it. Well, I did want to ask you, when you had mentioned that to your group, what was the response? Discomfort. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of that squeaking of the chairs mm-hmm. of like, a, oh, dear God. Um, and, and the discomfort, I think, was paired with a sense of like, now that we know it, are we obligated to do something about it? Mm-hmm. And if we are obligated to do something is there something we can do that's shy of the ultra dramatic? I'm going to walk out with a fire hose. Well, first, I'm going to give away my land to a person of color. And then, two, I'm going to take up the front lines on the fire line, right? Like, so that's like the ultimate dramatic reversal of roles. So, is there something between here and there that we can do? Yeah. And if so, what is that? And yeah. it's hard. Well, it's interesting because I was watching, I think it was um, on CBS, um, a CBS news piece where they were talking about the history of like redlining Mm -hmm. and um, segregation in housing and how because of different governmental policies, white people have been able to own homes and then been able to increase their wealth because of that, where that was pretty much shut out for black people. And at the end, when they were talking about what can be done, the two white men who had been, who were kind of historians and who were talking about um, the history of this, they kind of fell silent Hmm. and it was uncomfortable because it was like, okay, we know this information, but then what do we do with it? Because Mm -hmm. it's like people learn information and a lot of times they don't want to give up any of the privilege that they might have in order Mm -hmm. to level the playing field for people of color. So, um, but um, I recently read Rethinking Incarceration and one of the um, things that really stuck out to me was... um, a a 1995 survey had asked 
would you close your eyes for a second, envision a drug user, and describe that person to me? And 95% of respondents pictured a black person. Wow. And the book went on to say that studies have shown that white people are more likely to use and deal drugs and white youth are seven times more likely to use cocaine and heroin than Mm. black youth and three times more likely to sell drugs. And at that time of the the question was asked, about 15% of drug users were black. And that's still roughly the same when the book um, Rethinking Incarceration was published in 2018. Mm. But despite these facts, black people represent the vast majority of drug offenders sent to prison. Mm. And um, the book later describes how the war on drugs specifically targeted the African-American communities and that Until 2010, a five-year mandatory minimum sentence was triggered for the sale of 500 grams of cocaine, Mm. which is typically associated with white users. Mm. And in contrast, a five-year mandatory minimum sentence was triggered for the sale of five grams Mm. of crack cocaine, which is typically associated with black or Hispanic users. So under this unequal and unjust system, black people served virtually the same amount of time for in prison for nonviolent drug offenses as white people did for violent offenses. And I think if you look now at the opiate crisis, Mm -hmm. and I was just reading how um, there's a a settlement that's being proposed between four big pharmaceutical companies, including Johnson and Johnson for like $26 billion. Mm. But when you look at how the opiate crisis has just devastated American communities. And when you look at how a lot of these drug, um, drug execs and drug companies knew how dangerous opiates were and Mm -hmm. pushed the selling of them Mm -hmm. onto like doctors and a lot of times doctors who were illegally giving prescriptions, all of that. Mm -hmm. But when you look at the fact that none of those execs are actually facing any type of jail or prison time for that and how when you're black, you're sentenced to time in prison, but when you're white, you can just pay a fine. Mm. It's like, you know, when you think about things like that, it's just, it blows your mind. It it really, and in the most appalling and uncomfortable ways, mm-hmm. because that's real, like that is real. Mm-hmm. Like we can't, we can't really argue about that. And what's so interesting is, I mean, just last week I was in a conversation with someone who hasn't really even begun kind of an awareness of their own whiteness, mm-hmm. let alone any kind of anti-racist work. And we were talking about homelessness. And again, drugs came up, right? That was like the de facto bad guy in the room. The boogeyman was drugs. And that's true of like racial racial disparities and incarceration. That's true of our view of homelessness and other things. And yet, like you just mentioned, drugs really aren't the issue. Mm-hmm. Like apparently we have no problem if billionaires hand out drugs to millions of people. Exactly. But if there's a black man on the street, which... And again, I haven't done crack cocaine. I'm not sure, but I think five grams is about like a dose for a person, right? Mm-hmm. Is not is not mass distributed. Mm-hmm. So one person has one dose, and they'll go to jail for five years. You get 500 grams, right? Half a kilogram, 
a pure cocaine, that's a lot of cocaine. That'll that'll rave a party all night long. But a white person has it. Well, then then they go to jail for the same. So one one hundredth of the offense and a personal offense versus a corporate offense, meaning a group of people at a rave party. And then you you just turn that dial all the way up to eleven. And you've got these pharmaceuticals who are literally manufacturing stuff that is killing millions of people. And we know it. Mm -hmm. And it's taken an immense amount of activism in order to even bring that period to some account. And like you just said, the their version of accountability is not accountability. There's really no culpability involved. In, in what's happening with the pharmaceuticals other than just like, well, I guess you're not going to be able to keep making billions of dollars. You're back to making millions of dollars. Sorry. And I think it's really important what you're talking about because for those black people who were in prison because of dry, drug offenses or because of selling drugs, their lives are forever changed. Not mm. only because they spent a certain amount of time removed from their family, removed from society. But when they try to get out, Mm -hmm. they're going to have a harder time getting a job because they have a criminal conviction. It's going to be harder to get housing, to, you know, make money, all those type of things. Whereas you look at someone like Johnson and Johnson, a company like Johnson and Johnson, in spite of the opiate scandal, they're Mm -hmm. now having, you know, just able to market a drug and all of a sudden they're heroes again. Yeah, yeah, they, they really are, right? If you read the headlines right now, they're heroes exactly. because of, you know, their new vaccine that was just approved. And So I think that that just kind of like emphasizes the disparity in our country. And when you look also at um, the opiate crisis and how now it's like people who um, have an opiate addiction are somehow victims and they need treatment and we need to put money towards the community. I absolutely agree with that. But where was that same amount of sympathy and empathy when it was black and brown people who were the ones who were addicted to, dr- to drugs? And, and we don't even have to go back to the 80s. We can go back to summer 2020 when people were calling to defund the police and redirect funds to community activism and other things. And there was still outrage for that. Right. And then, but when you look at the opioid crisis, which again is primarily a rural white crisis, although it affects all Americans. um, Yeah. Suddenly everyone was very empathetic to the community support for it. Um, But still there's this ongoing battle of like, you know, how, how are police meant to be, the first responders for a lot of these issues that they've become first responders to. Mm-hmm. And is that even the appropriate channel? Um, and again, yeah, you look at what, what color body is being responded to and it's a tragic disparity in a structural policy response. Yeah, absolutely. And another thing that was really surprising to me um i've i've known about mass incarceration since college and it's something that i've um you know continued to follow but the in the book it lays out how private prisons actually have quotas for Mm. how many prisoners have to Mm. occupy beds so this can um, range from about 70 percent to 100 percent oh my occupant occupancy So not only when we're talking about this type of disparity, we're talking about prisons that are profiting off of how many people are um, imprisoned. 
And you have, when you look at that, and when you look in a capitalistic society about companies making money, then of course you're going to have policies that are going to be enacted so more people go to prison and they're able to make more money off of the number of people who are in prison. Mm. And and let's just draw just for, for our listeners, let's just draw a little bit clear of a line in what you're saying there and, and correct me if I'm getting it wrong. The way that I understand it, those contracts are written so that the local police departments or the state's justice department, I'm not quite sure which entity it is, has to pay those prisons if they fall below those bed rates. Yes. So the local sheriff, the local PD is now incentivized because the attorney general or some budget officer will say, if you don't fill 20 beds this week, we're going to have to write a check for $10,000. Yes. Go fill those beds. Well, now the police are financially incentivized, not on the behalf of the citizenry, but on behalf of the private prison to actually meet the quote unquote production demand of the private corporation at the literal direct expense of the citizenry. Yes. Oh, man. And that's not to mention how private companies are also using the prison labor to make goods. And like you had mentioned with the California wildfires, where you're able to pay a dollar a day for a firefighter, an inmate firefighter. And with a lot of these um, companies, people are working in prison and then they're barely getting paid if it's even a dollar a day. And then those companies are then selling whatever is made or whatever service the prisoners are offering for the Mm. regular market rate. Oh gosh. Yeah. Yeah. And this isn't new. I I just like to say this isn't new because I am, I've been listening to the audiobook of W. E. B. Du Bois's mm. The Souls of Black Folks. Mm. And that was written in 1903. And wow. he's talking about how after after slavery, when people could no longer have free um, slave labor, that there started to be things like black codes, where yeah. um, basically black people were picked up off the street if they didn't have a job or if they said that they had did some type of offense and then they were working in um in these different type of um jail gangs i forget exactly what they called them but they basically were imprisoned and then doing the same type of work that they were forced to do as slaves except Mm -hmm. this time during slavery the slave owner would have a financial interest in the well-being of the slave because they wanted to make sure that they were producing whatever product it was. But with the, um, in the convict leasing system, the black people would be worked even harder than Mm. slaves were worked because if, if they ended up dying, which a lot of them did because they were malnourished or overworked, then they would just find someone else to imprison and then just have them do the work instead. Oh my gosh. So this has been going on since after slavery. Yeah. Man. Where black people were have been indispensable in um mass incarceration to mm. use their skills and services to benefit from them. Man, the evil just stacks upon itself. And you know, I my personal view of mass incarceration as it stands right now, it like you were saying earlier when when 
uh, inmates are released, especially if you have a felony on your record, it's like it's the new three fifths law mm-hmm. because you're no you're now no longer fully human. Mm-hmm. And every single person I've had a conversation with, every single white, let me be clear, every single white person I've had a conversation with about this will begin squirming. It doesn't matter how progressive or conservative they are. When we begin a conversation about humanizing felons, particularly, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. suddenly there's a lot of hemming and hawing, Mm -hmm. right? And it just reveals that systemically we have created a way to maintain a subhuman class Mm -hmm. that directly benefits us financially and directly benefits our property and shores up our future generations for increased wealth. Mm-hmm. It oh man, it it is it's it's probably the system in America that I hate the most. And I really don't say that word often, but genuinely like the the way that people go into prison, which I I do want to talk about the school to prison pipeline a little bit, but the way that people go into prisons and then the way that we treat them when they come out of prisons is let alone the way that they're treated in prison, right? Because all three of those things are just really messed up systems. But even, oh man, if we could, mm, it it just turns me on the inside. And at the same time, like we were saying, what do I do about it? What, you know, what, it's hard to do anything more than just like get angry. And yet something more is absolutely required. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that I um, appreciated about rethinking incarceration, the book, was that it did look at mass incarceration from a biblical standpoint and Mm. from a a Christian standpoint. And um, he, Du Bois Gilead talked about how, Christian thinkers had moved away from the concept of justice um, in the face of crime as needing repentance and restitution and instead focusing on the retribution aspect. Mm. And it was like, um, instead of like a communal restoration for both the victim and the perpetrator, it moved to the state being Mm. responsible for punishing the person who committed the crime. So we see this in the, the everyday American and even Christians view, like you said, when people are squirming of a person who's been incarcerated, we think, well, they did something wrong, so they deserve the mm. punishment. And we need to remove them from society. And when they come out, I don't want them working at my job. Mm. I don't want them at my PTA. I don't want them around my kids. But when you look at the... For example, with the war on drugs, and when you look at the how a lot of people who ended up serving time behind bars weren't even guilty of what mm-hmm. happened. Yeah. And when you look at, um, I mean, if you want to say that we as Christians need to work on the restoration aspect, then it's like, what can we do so that people who were in prison or who were in jail are getting the rehabilitation that they need either Mm -hmm. while they're there or while they come out. Mm -hmm. What 
how can they get the rehabilitation? How can they get the mental health treatment? How can they get the substance abuse treatment so that they can really rejoin society? Yeah. Yeah. And, and to me, the answer seems both obvious and almost impossible. And it's being human again, Mm -hmm. moving away from the three fifths law back to them being a fully vested human and and that and that starts you know in school right that starts when they're younger but that carries through all and and of course it starts both individually and politically mm-hmm. and it has to really start from both directions but i i almost question if there's any individual will and i don't question whether or not there's political will because there's not but i question whether or not there's individual will even within the christian church to have that conversation because not only are we then having to question some really deep-seated racist elements within us, us being the white church particularly, but it also brings into question some of our theological views. Mm-hmm. Because there really is a theological framework which tees up racial incarceration, which is what we now call mass incarceration, Um there, like you were talking about that that um, penance based, punishment based, right? When, when you say that that the law that committing a crime is committing a sin, when you equate the written law of the land with the declared righteous activity of God, and you be, you say those two things are not separate anymore; they're now the same. Mm-hmm. So now, if you if you break the law of the land, you are committing a sin against God. When you make that equation equal, and the American church certainly has, um, then it becomes, then, then as soon as you begin to question the law of the land, you're now questioning the law of God. You're now questioning theology. You're questioning things that are really deeply held. So I'm not even sure that people want to have that conversation because even if people want to say, can we make racism go away? They still want to keep all their beliefs comfy cozy inside about God. They think that, well, since Jesus wasn't racist, if we get rid of racism, we won't have to change anything we believe about Jesus. Mm -hmm. But I believe that that's not true because I believe that a lot of the ways that the modern, particularly let's talk about the Protestant evangelical church, the white evangelical church in America, the things that they believe about Jesus tee up racism to exist and and the 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 um, penal substitution atonement theory is a great cornerstone of the evangelical church and like you were just saying a great example of how it gives space to racist behavior and systemic racism i can't speak a lot about white evangelical um you know culture or tradition but like you mentioned i am a black catholic And I know that one of the um, issues that Catholics have really been grappling with is the portrayal of Jesus. And Mm. it's like, historically, Jesus was from the Middle East, Mm -hmm. you know, like Mm -hmm. he was from um, Bethlehem of Judea, which is current day Palestine. Yeah, He was not a white guy. With blue eyes. I'm sorry to break it. You mean he didn't look like me? No, I'm sorry. (laughs) He did not look like you. You know, and it's like. Thank God for that. There's this. 
picture that was making the rounds on Twitter, and it was um, when a black person was trying to enter the priesthood, I believe. Mm-hmm. And um, there was a in the Catholic Church, there was a lot of racism, and they mm-hmm. did not want to have black people as priests or as nuns. And mm-hmm. there was this picture that was making the rounds where there was a woman holding up a white woman holding up a sign that said, "The twelve apostles were white." Oh no! And I was like. Okay, but they weren't white. But they weren't. <laughs> they, you know, they. I'm sorry to tell you, they weren't yeah. white. And yeah. it's like Jesus wasn't white. And it's mm. like Jesus lived under a brutal Roman occupation. Mm. You know, he was he was an ethnic person of color who was mm. persecuted and sentenced to death and murdered by the state. Mm. You know, he yeah. he was a marginalized person. Yeah. So it's like. When we look at Jesus within that lens, and it's like, look at what he did went to the woman who was accused of adultery when they wanted to stone her. Yeah. Like, based on our penal system, he mm-hmm. would have said, yes, stone her, kill her. Yeah. But that's not what Jesus said. Right. And I'm not, I'm not saying, like, part of restorative justice is to look at a crime and to restore all the parties, including the victim. And it's like never to diminish that a crime happened. Right. You know, um, and and a lot of black people who are in jail are for nonviolent offenses. So there Mm -hmm. isn't even, you know, we're not talking necessarily about something really severe like rape or murder or anything like that. But it's like even in in every occasion, restorative justice is looking at a crime that occurred and looking at the victim and looking at the person who committed the crime and trying to restore a right relationship with all the people. Mm-hmm. And I think when you talk about a right relationship, it's also trying to get to the person who committed the crime, what was not right in that person's life that led mm-hmm. them to the point where they felt like they had to commit that crime. And how do you even restore that person to a place where they don't feel like they have to commit a crime? And when you think about that, that's one of the reasons why people say that a lot of times being poor in itself is considered a crime. Mm. Because it's like when you were talking earlier about the school to prison pipeline, a lot of these schools are completely underfunded. Mm -hmm. They don't have... They have overcrowded classrooms. They have like a revolving door of teachers. They have um, lack of special education programs, lack of like, you know, programs that would help people who are struggling with reading or writing, um, with math. And it's like, and then when you add on top of it, these resource officers who are basically like cops who are policing the students. So, and it's like from a very early age, um, oh, there were some statistics in the book um, that 40% of students expelled from school are black. Mm. And when you think about like, I'm sure it kind of goes back to that study earlier when they were saying, what do you imagine um, a drug user to look like? Mm-hmm. And when I say 40% of students who are expelled are black, I'm sure you're imagining a black teenager who's being disrespectful or starting mm-hmm. a fight or you know has sagging pants, whatever <laughs> stereotypes come mm-hmm. to mind. But it was really interesting that um, when we talk about preschool, mm-hmm. that 
Black children are 18% of all students nationally, but they account for 48% of preschoolers who receive more than one in out-of-school suspension. Preschoolers are getting out-of-school suspension? What on earth for? And I would just, I, I want to tell you a personal experience I had with this. Um, we had started my my oldest, well, my son, who's 18 now, we had started him at a Catholic school when he was in kindergarten. Mm. And his first year went really well. And his second year, he had a teacher, and I believe it was her first year. Oh, sorry about that. I believe it was her first year teaching. And she had this um, system in the class where you'd get a green card if you were behaving well, get a yellow card if you needed some adjustments on your behavior, and got a red card if you had done something that she thought was like not acceptable in the classroom. Ooh, okay. And if you got a red card, then you would have different levels of punishment for that. Hmm. So our son kept getting red card after red card after red card. And um, it ended up getting to the point where I asked the school, um, because he would have to go see the principal, and I asked the school if they would have an outside person come and sit in on the classroom and see exactly what's going on. Because we were working on it at home and saying, are you listening to the teacher? Are you not talking? So they had um, a district um, psychologist who was trained to observe classrooms come in the class, and she she, – talked to my son and she observed the class over a period of time. And she ended up writing a report that said that the teacher was picking out my son Mm. for behavior that other students in the classroom were doing, but she was picking him out and giving him the red card for the exact same behavior. And so we ended up leaving that school because we didn't feel like the principal was really adequately um, responding to the problem. But that showed me from my personal experience how African-American boys especially are oftentimes policed and yeah. punished simply for being an African-American boy. Mm. And it's yeah. really heartbreaking when you think yeah. about it. Yeah. And and if you were – if you had to leave him in that environment for whatever reason and <clears throat> you weren't able to – do some other and and he carried that forward in his life without him doing anything wrong. The chances of him ending up incarcerated would have been significantly higher mm-hmm. than for his peer who looked like me. And when you when you mention that it it is um, youth who don't graduate from high school are eight times more likely to go to prison, mm. and black youths are five times more likely to be incarcerated. Then they're a white peer mm. and La- Latino and native Americans are two to three times more likely. Mm. So when you, when you're talking about discrimination happening as early as preschool, and then when you talk about um, black and Brown kids being in these schools that are underfunded and over policed, yeah. yeah. and you talk about, because when you, when you are in a school where you're not feeling like you're getting a proper education and then you're constantly being policed mm-hmm. instead of treated like a youth in a school setting, mm-hmm. then that leads to higher amounts of people dropping out. And then yeah. in turn leads to higher 
behavior that can lead to being incarcerated. So yeah. it starts from it starts from the earliest ages. Yeah, really. And you know, I and I forget the statistic now, but but just kind of the the category that this study revealed blew my mind. But it was talking about the number of virtual suspensions there have been during lockdown and the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, hang on, you're on Zoom. Like you can just <laughs> mute the person. Like why? And and it was a disproportionate number. And it was particularly in this study was looking at um, black girls, mm-hmm. a disproportionate number of black girls who have mm-hmm. been virtually suspended from school. Mm-hmm. Why do we need virtual suspensions? But it just really? reveals this this tacit need to punish Mm -hmm. punitively Mm -hmm. people who don't need punishment yeah they need partnership yeah they need oh man it yeah and and you know it it, as a white person who has moved in white circles my whole life there does seem to be this element of you know you're talking about the sros um in schools the the police and and private prisons and all these other things we have set up. And we seem to have this desire of displacement. And what we say by that, like you, when you were talking about restoration and getting all parties involved, including the person who did wrong, my thought a bit on purpose cynically, but also just really was like, oh, but then that asked something of me. But if I can just offload all of the penal requirements onto someone else. So I don't have to do anything. I can just walk away feeling like justice has been served. When if if I can do that, then that's easy. But as soon as you say, "Oh, I have to now be in conversation. I have to now explore what I did to contribute to that situation, what that person needs so the situation isn't repeated." Now that's work on my part. Well, I would rather just pay a private prison and politicians and other policy structures to offload that responsibility from myself so I don't have to think about it. And it's created this yeah. really um this really derivative system of of excessive mm-hmm. punishment. But I I mean I think about it in every I mean from our food system, right? We say, gosh, I don't want to think about what I'm gonna eat in a hundred days and have to plant the right seeds and cultivate a crop. I'm gonna outsource that thought to another country and then i'm gonna outsource the thought of well now how am i going to get that food i'm going to outsource that thought to a food manufacturer who's going to make it shelf stable for me so that way i can unburden myself from all thinking so i can just move through my life thoughtlessly we do it with our food with our education with our prison systems we do it with our politicians we do it with our pastors and our priests say i don't want to have to think about what God thinks of me. I'll just listen to what my pastor or priest says God thinks of me. And I think it's interesting because when you're talking about the food and how it's like, we don't want to think about it. Look at what's happened to our climate Mm. because of that, not wanting to think about it. And it's like, I I'd like to say the same thing. Look what's happening to the black and Brown people Mm -hmm. who are suffering because of mass incarceration because we don't want to think about it. And I I would say that everyone, when we talk about slavery, would say that if I was alive during that time, I would not be, I would not be a slaveholder. I would be an abolitionist. I'd be against it. But it's like the, you know, mass incarceration today is called neo-slavery. 
it's it's just another form and like uh, michelle alexander had coined the new jim mm -hmm. crow this is a continuation of the same oppression and enslavement in a different form of black people that's been going on since before the country was founded absolutely, absolutely. and i as a white man continue to directly benefit from that system of subjugation so not only has it preserved a system of slavery, but has also preserved a system of white supremacy and white wealth. Well, I think everyone who's not incarcerated continues to benefit from it. Because like we said, when you have this huge amount of people, I think it's like 2.3 million people who are incarcerated right now. And when they're making products and, and you know, providing services that ends up being at a cheaper cost for us That's to true. buy those products or services. Yeah. So in a way, we're all benefiting yeah. from it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And, 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 and part of what they're doing is also managing our food supply. And so even the fact that mm -hmm. we can um, buy food cheaply and at our whim is also partially a result of a system of mass incarceration. In my journey, I, I was in full time. So, you know, I, I was raised in a white evangelical church. Uh, <clears throat> part of my own stories, I went to high school in Kenya and my parents were white missionaries in the country of Kenya. So that made me believe certain things about myself that I've had to now go back and unpack in my own story. I, I, I've been in this process of re-examining a lot of the things that I were that I was told was true all growing up which has led me to questioning a lot of my faith and the role Jesus plays in all of that versus the church and other things. And, and I've noticed, especially on your YouTube and other things, you seem to still very much identify as being part of the church. So in light of everything we've been talking about, I guess I have two questions. The first part is why Catholicism? And the second part is why are you staying? Well, I was, I'm a, what you call a cradle Catholic. Um, my mom, um, like I said, originally is, was originally from South Africa and she's been Catholic all her life. So I was born and raised Catholic and went to Catholic school, kindergarten, all the way up to my sophomore year in college. And then um, ended up transferring to a state school and um, graduating from a state school with a degree in religious studies. So I've always been Catholic. And um, honestly, the only time when I thought about not being Catholic was when I was studying Islam mm. as part of my religious studies major. And there was something about the um, the reverence in Islam and like, for example, like the prayer practices and how they um, like people who are really devout pray five times a day and just prostrating themselves. There was just something that was really you know, that touched me in a way. And um, also Malcolm X is a big influence, um, a historical influence in my life. So that was the only time I really thought, like, would I possibly leave the Catholic mm. Church? Um, but now, as an adult, I've really been, and one of the things I explore on my YouTube channel is the role of Black Catholicism in mm. the church. And it's like looking at Black saints that go all the way back to like the 15th century 
and looking at the African-Americans on the path to sainthood mm. and just looking at like the influence of African-Americans in the mm. church. All those type of things make me really feel like I can bring my cultural identity mm. as an African-American with me into mm. the church. So um, I feel like that not I'm not ignorant to the racism that has plagued the church and continues to plague mm. the church. But I just feel like I want to be a voice that is calling for equality and speaking up against that mm. racism. And so if if you were to say something, because I know that a lot of my listeners are in a zone that, you know, for better or for worse, it's, it's categorized as kind of a deconstructionist zone. People who are beginning to say there's something beyond just this material life that must be real. I don't know if what was given to me before really satiates that question of what that could be. So if there were other people listening to this who find themselves in a similar position to you as being a progressive Catholic, um, what would you say to them as far as like, you know, they're on the fence of like, man, should I just throw this whole thing out and start over? Um, should I keep trudging along with it? You've made the choice to keep staying in it. What would you say to people who are kind of on the fence in their own process of their place in the world? Well, for me personally, um, the reason I'm still a Catholic is because I really get a lot out of the sacraments mm. that the Catholic Church has, um, particularly the Eucharist. And um, I know that there's nowhere else I can go to participate in receiving the mm. Eucharist. Um, so that's one of the reasons that it's a really big part of my life staying in the Catholic Church. But for people who, you know, the sacraments, they don't participate in the sacraments or um, they don't care about the Eucharist. It's just kind of more like, um, what can I get out of the church? For me, when I'm looking at it like that, it all comes down to my relationship with um, Jesus and how I feel that because of the relationship I have and because of my faith, um, it dictates everything that I do in mm. the world. And it really propels me. Like um, I've, I have a very close connection with the mm. Holy Spirit. And I feel like I'm led by what the Holy Spirit kind of directs me to do. So I feel like um, in order to... Like sometimes religion can just feel like you're thinking about ideas, you know, and it's like, do I like this idea? Do I believe this mm -hmm. idea? But where I am right now in my faith is more a relationship mm -hmm. than an idea or a thought. It's like a relationship with Jesus, a relationship with the Blessed Mother, with the saints, with the Holy Spirit. That's what keeps me in the church also. And, and I guess what I'm hearing is, it's a relationship that has practical implications for your Monday morning decision-making as opposed to just Absolutely. kind of this theoretical like afterlife or something else. Yeah. That's very definitely. rooted. And I yeah. think, I think with a lot of Catholics, cause I think that the Catholic people who are, um, who are raised Catholic have the highest rates of leaving the mm. church. And I think that one of the reasons is because if you just go to church, if you show up and go through the emotions and go home once a week, that's not a relationship. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that that 
we really have to get back to a relationship with mm -hmm. Jesus to feel that you want to participate in Christianity. <laughs> I 100% I agree. Absolutely. And that that's kind of where I am in my own journey is, um, and, and me, and I, I think maybe I'm being a little too severe, um, to the institution, but I'm, I'm kind of like, okay, the relationship matters so much that I need to kind of sort through all the dross a little bit and just kind of focus in on that, which means that I've have thrown out some of the baby with the bathwater a little bit, but you're so for you, cause it sounds like maybe we arrived at, at the same, same point from different places and are doing different things with that realization. But this moment of like, if we're going to keep doing this thing, it's got to be about relationship, not about like performance mm -hmm. or something else. And mm -hmm. that relationship, mm -hmm. at least for me has to have practical implications for my daily life. It can't have these yes. ethereal implications, although those are important too, but it has to be practical. So did that realization come to you through a series of teachings? Was that like your own moment where you kind of felt yourself on the brink and you're like, if I'm going to keep moving forward with this Catholic journey, like I need to base it on something different than just going to church. How did you kind of get to that place where you can now ground yourself in that tenet of relationship? Cause I know it can be talked about a lot sometimes, but I'm not sure that everyone who shows up at church is really tracking with what we're saying. Well, um, I think I've had a, a few different, what I guess I would say, um, like, you know, when St. Paul gets knocked off the horse, actually, was he the one who got knocked off the horse? I always get that confused. But when he feels like he has a personal encounter with Jesus and then he's blinded yes. for yes. three days, um, I've had that happen where it's kind of like a, I have either something traumatic or just a really big trial. Um, and I understand in that moment that the only way I made it to the other side was through God intervening mm. in my life. And when I have that, when I've had that happen, it kind of realigns me with God and with my mm. faith. Because I think that so many times when we don't need God, we almost forget mm. about him. Yeah. Because it's like, and it's like when you're in a position where you need him and you're praying to him and he answers that, then it's like, there's that relationship right yeah. there. And I've learned, I've learned from my experience that I don't want to be that type of friend who's only there when I need to ask mm. you for something. I want to have a relationship with you that I ask you, what do you need me mm. to do? instead of me just coming with a laundry list of demands yeah. for God. Yeah. Yeah. That changes things a lot. Yeah. Wow. Well, Alessandra, I, I have loved this conversation and I am so thankful that you've been stretching it out a little bit longer. I've learned a lot from you. I've really appreciated your wisdom and your voice in this. And I know that everyone listening um, has definitely walked away with a lot of good stuff as well. So thank you. Okay. Thank you. And that's our show. If this conversation was meaningful to you like it was to us, leave a rating and review so that more people just like us can discover this podcast and join the conversation themselves. Thank you for listening. This has been such a fun conversation and we'd love for you to join the conversation too. But hey, you've heard enough of our voices. For show notes or to connect with this community of seekers, visit us online at ofdustanddivinity.com. 
partner with us on Patreon and get access to exclusive content, merch, and hidden perks. Go to patreon.com slash ofdustanddivinity. Join our Facebook group, Of Dust and Divinity Podcast Community, and engage with us on Instagram at ofdust underscore and divinity. As you go through your day, remember these words of Rainer Maria Rilke. Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. Do not seek the answers which cannot be given to you, for you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Now.